Hi, this is Ryan Miner. Thanks for listening to a Minor Detail podcast. Over the next several weeks of the Annapolis Legislative Session, the show will be broadcasting live from the iconic Harry Brown's restaurant on State Circle. Speaking of Harry Brown's, on March 3rd, a Minor Detail is celebrating its fifth birthday. Join yours truly and featured guest Comptroller Peter Francho from 6 until 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, March 3rd for a special birthday fundraiser celebration. While you're at it, you can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Overcast, CastBox, or virtually any podcast application. And be sure to check out the podcast on a aminordetailpodcast.com. If you like what you hear in this episode, or maybe you hate it, I want to know. Email me your feedback at ryan at a minor detail.com. On week four of the Annapolis Legislative Session, Baltimore City Delegation Chair Stephanie Smith joined the show for the first time. Here's what we discussed. I'm with Delegate Stephanie Smith at Harry Brown's, and we're in this back room because, I kid you not, there is an Irish man out there singing songs with a fiddle it never happened before and i'm here i am i show up and this really nice audience comes what's this guy doing here on the radio and i was like up not radio just a podcast and they're like can we come on we have opinions and i'm like no i don't know no but you can play me some great music maybe delegate stephanie smith who is the new chairwoman of the baltimore delegation that's baltimore city maybe Maybe you have a musical talent. Are you talented musically? Yeah, I'm a pretty good singer. Um, we're gonna we're gonna have um, a freshman karaoke night. Um, wow! On the sixth, so be there or be square. February sixth. Where at? Um, what is it? Calabay. Yeah. The, yeah. Right down the street. Right down the street. We'll yeah. Just call it the Irish place. The other Irish. Place. The other <laughs> Irish place. So. Tonight is January the 28th. I am in Annapolis at our flagship location for a minor detail podcast, and I asked the new Baltimore uh, delegation chair to come on. You're a sophomore in your first term. Well, sophomore session. but Sophomore first, session. Yeah. How's things going so far, delegate? I think things are going well. I, I think, you know, for me, I'm personally I'm gratified to have the unanimous support of my colleagues on the Baltimore City delegation to assume this role. And um, we have a great team of, of, of new people that came with me, as well as veterans that are fully committed to making sure that we work together um, to, to move Baltimore forward and to focus on three specific priorities around making sure we have the education funding we need for our young people, also addressing um, PEMLICO redevelopment in a way that's um, beneficial to the community and also retains the Preakness in Baltimore City. My wife is cheering right now. If that's she's, just for you, wife. She, my, my wife, Kim, is uh, from, you, as Kim. I from Reisterstown, and that is such a monumental issue. Absolutely. When I was at, did you go to Talls this past year uh, yes, at Crisfield? Yes, I did. So Bruce Barriano was handing out Keep Preakness in Baltimore right. buttons. We have one of those on our refrigerator. I appreciate that. <laughs> and then the third priority, which is not um, third in, in terms of preference or, or importance, but just listing, is no. public safety. Public safety. Three big, I mean, these are huge issues that yeah. you're tackling. But I first want to talk about you. I want to talk, of course, we have to, (laughs) I want to talk all about you and you told me you grew up in Virginia Beach. You're actually from there. And your dad was a Navy man. He was a Navy guy. And so you spent a lot of time there, right on the Chesapeake. It's a great spot, great place to vacation. Absolutely. And I I tell you what, uh, you you mentioned your mom has a a reaction to crab cakes. Yeah, she can't that's, eat them because she's allergic, and that's, I think it's sad. Because <laughs> we have some really great ones in our district, particularly at Coco's. Shout out to the 45th. Oh, so Coco's, man, that's good stuff. Um, tell me about growing up in Virginia Beach mm-hmm. and then how you eventually decided to settle on Baltimore City. And I know you became a lawyer, right? Because, right. of course, Annapolis needs lots of lawyers. We need more of those. We need lots of lawyers, <laughs> right? I'm, I almost have an MBA um, okay. in May. So, oh, congrats. Uh, and whatever, maybe I will turn this into a media empire. That's my goal, right? Yeah. So tell me about you. Okay. So um, as, I men- as you mentioned, I grew up in Virginia Beach. Um, but my family is a Maryland, D.C. 
Virginia family. So my great aunt actually followed migrant workers from the Tidewater area of Virginia to oh. the eastern shore of Maryland. And that's how we began our Maryland outpost of our family. Um, she was a midwife and nurse. Wow. And then she settled um, in the eastern shore. And she, I believe she took care of over 100 foster kids. And then also, as a midwife, helped many people, both black and white bring their children into the world. So as people in our family in Virginia, you know, kids are orphaned, things would happen, they would all go live with Aunt Anna up in Maryland. So my family um, in Maryland were people I saw every summer. They would basically visit us in the vacation of Virginia Beach, kind of, you know, do that. So I always felt very connected to Maryland and Baltimore because I've always had family. And then on my other side of my family, Family started living in Baltimore in the 30s. So I'm just the latest part of my family. But I um, do relate to some of the frustrations that sometimes people may feel that are longstanding native Baltimoreans about feeling that sometimes you know, economic prosperity isn't being felt evenly or that access to certain amenities aren't being felt evenly. Because though I'm from Virginia Beach, a really great place to grow up, I am from the largest historically black part of Virginia Beach. And it did not always have, even in my older brother's lifetime, paved roads in our community or, or suitable sewage, you know, um, hookups. So I know what it's like to feel like there are amenities for you, even close by, like the oceanfront, and not always feel like they're for you. So um, in, in those ways, I do relate to many of the people I represent now in the 45th district. You know, you we have to talk about some of these tough issues. And it's, it's hard sometimes to talk about race in America. Right. But we have to, we have to. As, as someone um, who, who covers these, these issues. And in Annapolis, I feel like we have such an inclusive environment. Yeah. And Maryland is one of those states where all is welcome. Right. But we still deal with issues of race. Absolutely. And so maybe you want to talk, speak to that. And uh, I, I grew up in Western Maryland, right. and it's culturally right. much different than right. Virginia Beach. It's right. culturally different from, uh, from Baltimore City. Right. And when I moved into Washington D.C., when I got my first job, making like less than thirty thousand dollars as a Hill staffer, right. um, and I, I went to school in a in a small big city in Pittsburgh. Um, I, you know, race, these, these issues, I, I thought, well, I think I have a, a grasp. I had, right. I, I, I didn't. And being around people of multi, of right. culture and people who are, are different, I'm so thankful that our right. kids in Montgomery County right. have a diversity of cultures and it's a beautiful thing, Absolutely. but we still have some tough challenges right. in our country. And, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that's, I'm hoping you can speak to those. Yeah, because I think that for me, that's why I'm so passionate about education. It's the reason why I ran. I'm a proud product of public education, as is my husband. So we have um, a 14-month-old and a 5-year-old. And when I moved to Baltimore, you know, one of the big questions is, where are you going to put your kid in school? I'm like, the school. Because <laughs> I went to the school down that the was down the road from me. It yep. was the same school my mom went to, my brother went to, my cousins went to. So this whole notion that you had to um, do a lot of maneuvering to get an education was a foreign concept to me. So um, I always knew I was going to put my kid in public school. And, um, you know, he's now a kindergartner in public school. But um, I really believe that the quality of your public schools, it's, it really um, is reflective of just kind of the, the priority, the prioritization we have of the future of young people. And it's also about your economic, um, your economic sustainability in the future. If you don't have adequately educated people over multiple generations, you're going to pay a, a high price for not adequately educating people in the first place. You're going to pay that high price in incarceration money because there's, there's tens of thousands of dollars we spend each year for people we never properly educated in the first place. Right, and I think we have an over-incarceration problem yes. Yes. in this country. Especially for nonviolent. A nonviolent right. drug, Crimes of poverty there, in some instances. There are people, and, and I grew up in a county in Washington County where right. there's a right. major jail system. Yes. Uh, a major penitentiary. Big uh, employment source. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And there are people sitting in jail for nonviolent drug offenses. Right. And to me, that is a travesty of injustice. It is. is. And it doesn't really, if you think about it, any system of incarceration that there's a profit margin means that it's going to, there's incentives to make sure people are always in those cells. So I think um, we really need to, um, we really need to separate the profit margin from human incarceration because to me like we should not be finding ways for that to be a robust sector (laughs) it's a sector that needs to be um, put out of business because we're giving people the types of resources education and um, transportation pathways that they can live a life with purpose 
that they can be responsible taxpayers, that criminality is no longer a viable option because you can live a good life. And that's, I mean, that's why I think we're here. And in Baltimore, we have, um, you know, some people who have not always had the opportunities that they deserved under our state constitution to have access to a free and adequate education. And that's not just something that happened five years ago. It's not just something that happened 10 years ago. It's something that's literally happened for a couple of generations. So what we're doing around Kerwin is going to be monumental for the successive generations ahead. But we have to put in some policies that address the fact that Kerwin's not going to help my children's parents that didn't get that education. So what, what are we gonna do for um, adult education, worker training? We have to have that next level too because it's great that we're helping young people right now and into the future, but they're going home to people who maybe are underemployed. They're going home to people you know, who are struggling to make ends meet because they didn't have the, the tools they needed in the first place. And that puts stress on young people. It does. Big I, stress. I wanna bounce back to Kerwin later yes. in this oh, no interview. Worries, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's such a huge issue Absolutely. that dominates this session. Yes. In fact, coming into this session, I, I feel figured that Kerwin would be the number one issue, yeah, yeah. right? Funding our schools, how we pay for it. And I want to touch on that um, later. No worries. But you're an attorney. Yeah. And did you go to law school in Maryland? Uh, Howard in D.C. Howard in D.C. A great school. Yes, historic. Yes, it it's, a, it's one of those absolutely historic uh, institutions. So when you got out of law school, mm-hmm. Did you practice law immediately? No, believe it or not, I've never been a litigator. Is that I right? I went directly to the Hill, and I worked for Congressman Keith Ellison. Wow. I graduated in 2009, and some people have From law school? It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They've called um, the graduates from 2009 the lost generation of lawyers, because we graduated into the implode- imploding legal economy. <laughs> and I already um, had a master's in public policy. I already had a background in policy. So for me, um, being an attorney going to the Hill was like a progression of other things that I had done in the past, but um, for some people, it might have been something they considered only because that law firm job literally dried up or you know disappeared. But I never wanted that. You know, I always wanted um, to work in the public sector around policy and around making people's lives better and understanding the law. You're never going to regret knowing more about the law and being able to understand the complexities of statutes and things of that nature. So Keith Allison being the first elected Muslim, Muslim exactly. to the United States Congress, who then ultimately ran for Minnesota's attorney he general, the attorney general, and he became the attorney general. Yeah. I have never been to Minnesota. You have not? It's a great place. Never. And it's very cold I in hear... the winter, but it's really warm and in I, the summer. And I believe in the continental United States, they have the northernmost area, correct? They do, and they also have the biggest, um, I don't know, it's not disparity, but they have the biggest gulf from like temperatures in a year. Like they go from very, very cold to very, very warm. Okay. Yeah, and do... they also have, I think, the highest numbers of, um, in Minneapolis specifically, the highest number of um, Fortune 500 companies per capita. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought Delaware had a lot of these big companies. That's incorporated. So two-thirds of all Fortune 500 companies are incorporated in Delaware. Mm. So they are a Delaware corporation for the purposes of incorporation, but they don't have their headquarters there. I have a LLC incorporated here in Maryland, <laughs> so I will not be going to Minnesota. But there is, of course, a Minnesota United States senator who is running uh, and, yes. you know, Amy Klobuchar, um, she is running hard, and we'll see what's going to happen in the Iowa caucuses. But that must have been interesting because Keith Ellison was a a true blue progressive. Absolutely. I I mean, we're talking— Chair of the Progressive Caucus. Exactly. And he he came into Congress, and that was— that was a big moment in American history when you elected the first Muslim. Right. And I remember back in college, my, you know, this was when I still would watch Fox News. I, I admittedly don't watch Fox anymore. I mean, they threw, I don't, I can't. I, it, I, I have to watch news. Not that's not Oh, you know, I can't be, you know. Gotta I, know a little bit of what's happening. You know, my eight o'clock is Tucker Carlson and then nine o'clock is Sean Hannity. And I. <laughs> I, you still know the schedule, and Ryan. That, yeah, and by you know by ten o'clock, I'm drunk after watching Laura Ingram. So, I mean, you would need to be drunk watching that primetime lineup. So, <laughs> I remember Fox News through everything. I, it was scare tactics. Oh, absolutely. Against Keith Ellison because yep. he was Muslim, yep. and I believe he was first elected what 06? Yes. Yeah, and that was the wave. That was when. Nancy Pelosi became Speaker right. Pelosi. It was a big deal. That was the year of when George W. Bush was in his latter half of his right. term, and he suffered monumental consequences with the Iraq War. That's right. 
And so here we are, and uh, Congress changed at that moment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and then in 2009, when you graduated, working for him, what was that like? What was that experience like other than making no money on the Hill? Exactly. <laughs> Especially because you're three degrees later, and this is what I'm making. You know, yeah. That's not what your parents are hoping for, right? Um, I think what was really great for me is that every office on the Hill is its own small business, right? Yeah. It operates completely different. You know, And what I'm really proud of the time that I spent with Keith is that the way he ran his office, you had a counterpart in the district office who worked on the policy issues from the um, intake perspective right. that corresponded with what you worked on. And I can't tell you how often I would tell people in other offices, oh, I checked with my counterpart in the district, and they're like, who? A lot of people don't even know who the other people are who That's work right. at the district offices, quite frankly. So that kind of cohesion, even though they're clearly in the 5th District halfway across America, <laughs> I thought was kind of remarkable. And I actually got to really know these people, and they're my friends to this day because we would even have retreats of wow. the staff. You know, It was really important to him that we um, have good working relationships so that we can best serve the people in the 5th District. And I think that um, you know, that's something that people appreciated. They knew that we really were one, you know? When when Congressman Ellison became a congressman, I I hope that that broke some barriers. Oh, yeah. That I remember at a time in America, and it wasn't so long ago when it was depicted that Muslims were supposed right. to be scary. Right. And I just remember being a college student, and I was a political science undergraduate right. Right. studying this, and going to a private Catholic university, of course, we didn't have many, but when I got integrated into the DC community, you work with so many diverse people. And it's it's almost heartbreaking to think that somebody would simply be defined by the religion or because in the Christian faith, um, and I'm, I'm Catholic, I think, um, (laughs) I still, (laughs) still wherever that journey is leading me. But, uh, no, I mean, I think that faith sets you oh, up yeah. with a specific oh, yeah. moral code, and you, you try to abide it, and we, right. we're human, we fail. But right. I, I think that that barrier was such an important one, because we often hear one side of the aisle talking about religious freedom yeah. until it really counts, until it counts right. right? And right. so to me, I see religious freedom is the celebration of all cultures, all religions. and Or even freedom. To not to practice have right, faith. and it used to be. Remember, <laughs> right. it used to be a thing where if you were non-practicing, it was virtually impossible to be elected to, to Congress anything. to right. anything, right? Right. right? And now people are much more open and free to express that maybe they're agnostic, maybe they're right. atheist, maybe they have a, a much different belief. And to me, I think that's progress. I think delegate. people probably always felt that way. They just couldn't. They just couldn't be, say they it. They couldn't be real. And to your point about Keith, because that's the thing in Minnesota, you call everybody by their first name. They're not like senator. <laughs> She's just Amy. <laughs> She's just. It's just interesting, you know, Um, but we had an intern at the time who had um, a fully Arabic name and he was Muslim and he was doing research on on kind of the rates of of electability for uh, Muslim candidates across the country because Keith Ellison and Andre Carson, who at the time were the two Muslims in Congress, both black Americans, they were both converts to Islam. Is that right? Their names were Keith. Wow. And the kids were Andre. So I want to point out that he was like, it, he said it would mean something to him if someone could have a Muslim name yeah. and run. So when Ilhan Omar, mm. a lifelong Muslim from Minnesota, succeeds, Keith Ellison, I've always wondered what he thought about that because he noted at the time the only elected Muslims in Congress were converts. Keith was raised Catholic. Uh, what do you, <laughs> what's, they're, they're called the, the crew or what? Because she's part of it. The squad. The squad. That's right. I, I, <laughs> a synonym for the squad uh, right. that is tearing up Congress. You have right. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, right. right. um, uh, Ayanna Presley. Ayanna Presley, and oh you have, in Detroit. I'm blinking on her name. I can see it right now. Yes, Rob and then, or something. Rob. Um, Rashida Talib. 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 Yeah, and then Tlaib. you have uh, the uh, uh, Ilhan Omar. Right. Right. And you see a lot of pushback against these four magnanimous women because of their beliefs, because of their strong convictions, their boldness, and agree or disagree with them politically, it's it's remarkable to see women of color, women of different religions that are... Ethnicities, everything. And I look at this Congress, and I, I think it's reason to celebrate, right? Absolutely. Because it is truly becoming representative of yeah. America. There was a time in our both of our lifetimes, right. I'm 34 years old. I'm older than you. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's okay. Right. I, you, you have much less gray hair than I do, almost none. So, For now. Um, I just remember that 
Congress resembled what Western Maryland looks like. Right. And it's old and white. Right. But it's changing. Right. Things are changing. Annapolis is changing. It is, and just the year difference, maybe. Can, if, yeah. you were to ca- if you were to look back when you were first elected in 2008, you came last year to the House. I think 2019 for the state of Maryland has to be one of the most pivotal years in Maryland history. Absolutely. Sadly, we lost Speaker Bush. That was a tough moment for... Such a great speaker. And I only got to know him a little bit. And I felt like, wow, what a great guy. What a leader. So humble. And I didn't get to know him. But I, of course, talking to many of the state delegates and senators, they have personal stories about Speaker Bush. And then after Speaker Bush passed on May 1st of last year... They elected the first African-American right. female speaker in Maryland, Adrian Jones. Right. To me, that was a historical yes. moment of Huge. epic proportions. Huge. And so I, oft- I often think, well, Maryland can do this. So can other states. That's right. uh, I believe Virginia just elected its a first woman. female speaker. And also first Jewish speaker. Is that right? Considering my home state, it's a pretty Protestant it's, it's, <laughs> place. And so that's not a small, you know, not yes, a small thing. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. I believe your state also um, is home to the most number of United States presidents. Well, it is the state of presidents. Yes, it is the state of presidents. <laughs> and it almost had a vice. I mean, look, yeah. Hillary Clinton I did know, win the popular vote. Tim Kaine. I was listening to Tim yeah. Kaine today on NPR. Great guy. And he's someone who's very thoughtful and positive. Solid, like a solid yeah. person. Yeah, and someone who is kind of a middle of the road, right, right, right. Uh, former mayor. Of Richmond, yeah. And he was, actually has the most elected experience of like virtually anyone that's run. Because yeah. he started, I think, on council, like council, mayor, you know, governor. I, you know, he's he done. He was a governor. Yeah, he's done like everything. What is what is up with this one-term governor thing in Virginia? What is with that? The immediate lame duck. <laughs> Well, you know what? You know it can't last but so long, whatever just happened. Yeah. <laughs> so no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you're like, hey, yeah. it's only four years. Do you think McAuliffe is going to run again? Who? T- Terry McAuliffe? You know, I don't know about that. Or just was it Justin Fairfax? I'm hearing that he's going to run. That's, that's going to be an interesting race. And, you know, it, funny to me, and, but how did, how did Northam survive that thing? You know, I honestly think it's the, the Trump effect. You think so? I mean, look what we're withstanding right now. Because I thought... I mean, you know what I mean? It, it, I, people can always, no matter what their circumstance, no matter what party they're in, it's kind of easy to go, we're yeah. all still dealing with this. <laughs> I mean, you know. We, like, are, we are all still. Yeah, we're all like still dealing. It, it makes it hard, I think. It, like, you know what I mean? It's like the demise of... Yeah. Like things that would have shamed people into just throwing their hands up and walking away a generation ago... It's just not there. You know what I'm saying? Like in general. I think there's. I think it's fair to say that there's many issues that people can take right. with the current administration at the national level. Right. But to me, I a story that has just been in the news that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo oh has now removed a reporter. NPR reporter. Yes. We're talking about this NPR. Is that, crazy. And to me, when you attack the press. Right. You're attacking um, like our uh, democracy. Right. And if we make a mistake, right. we own it quickly, we apologize, right. and we are honest and transparent, and we quickly tell people that we screwed up. And I know that the press is not perfect. Of I get course. that. Nothing, nothing's perfect, yeah. But calling members of the press the enemy of the people, it's, I think it's beyond. horrible. It's beyond. I mean, that's why you saw the Washington Post add that new moniker, right? It's, Delegate, when last summer was an interesting moment in Baltimore City's history, mm-hmm. The President of the United States is calling your home a rat-infested district. How did that make you feel? It's funny. I'm on that funny. I guess to me it's like this is someone I hold no real regard for. So like Donald you know, Trump? Yeah. I mean, there's there, he has shown such limited respect for Gold Star families, um, people with disabilities. I mean, it's just another instance of him being incredibly disrespectful to people he represents. So I think after enduring years of his leadership, I realized that you can't even be offended by what he say by what he says because he literally does not seem to mean anyone well. I mean, he is the president. So there's no way he can insult a jurisdiction, a state without insulting himself <laughs> because he is our elected leader but to, but to think <laughs> like that he, you know the, like, the leader of the free world yeah. talking about an american city that, yeah shame on him i felt bad for him like 
I just I I looked it was at, beyond. I mean, I read the editorial from the Baltimore Sun. That yeah, it was, was pretty biting. It was ex- yeah, they have some teeth. Yeah, I don't always agree with the Baltimore Sun's editorials, I am with you. but they had some teeth, and I think that that was certainly well within bounds. The it bounds, was, yes, it was exactly because it's beyond the pale. Uh, but to criticize a city that yes, it has some trouble. Of course, it has challenges. But what are you offering to do to help? As if you don't possess executive authority. I mean, he's acting like he's someone on the couch, <laughs> pointing. Well, at, like you're the president. <laughs> I just wanna, what are you doing? He, it's like he's a spectator. Like right, he's, he acted like he's not a part of the system of government. Well, it's but just he like is. it would be like a grandpa watching Fox News and reacting angrily and then tweeting about it. Right. Oh wait, and he does that. Yeah, but he does. Yeah, exactly. He does that, and I think that's where it's really kind of it's scary. Like instead of being offended, it just further confirmed why we should all be anxious because someone this unstable literally carries our fate in his hands potentially. I thought that his attacks... Juvenile. I thought his attacks on Elijah Cummings was especially... Grotesque. And, yes. and of course, Elijah Cummings passed away right. in October. Right. And as you worked for a member of Congress, and I've worked for a member of Congress, uh, and I know that these members really, truly care about yes, their districts. And yes, you, they do. And... Yes, Congressman Cummings was in office for 20, er, for 20 years since he was elected in 1996. But you, you can't say that, you know, he referred to him as King Elijah. I mean, to me, that was insulting. Right. It was beneath the dignity of his office. But then again, we're used, it's like we're almost becoming immune to this. He's wearing us down. Um, I mean, you know what you're saying? He's wearing people down. I tell my kids that, and even from a journalistic perspective, that never... Ever will this be normal? No. Never will this be normal in be. American history. It can't be. We have endured lots of truly wonderful things in America. Absolutely. And then we have we have been through. I mean, we've come on in, civil war. I mean, we've had some d- dark days. Yeah, some truly truly horrific moments in American history. Nine eleven. Right. But right. Right. having a leader who is attacking an American city that is less than an hour right. away from the White House. Absolutely. And you're right. What could he have done? What it's like? Okay, Mr. Trump, what do you suggest that we do? And right. from a policy perspective, I think he was attacking Elijah Cummings because right. Elijah Cummings was investigating. Exactly. Him. The subpoenas were flying. I mean, as soon as I, I saw his tweet that Saturday morning, I already knew what this reaction was about. It, it was never about me, my neighbors, or making Baltimore better. It was about his anger that someone had power over him and he had no ability to control their actions. I um, mean, and someone who is, by and large, uh, exponentially, fundamentally decent. Yes, and well regarded nationally, not just beloved, beloved by people in Baltimore, but really respected. That's, to me, something that that's why Trump just has this, uh, just this complex about President Obama. Yes. President Obama. Elegant, eloquent, amazing. Is a <laughs> hard act to follow. Is a good Literally. man. Literally. He's a good man. And he's a good man, good father. And, and we can say that, good that husband. he was a good and fundamentally decent man. And you may disagree. Disagree with the politics. They never, never question that. It, yeah. I mean, there's, you can have real political That's disagreements. Right. Absolutely. But you never question President nope. Obama's integrity, nope. his commitment to decency, right. to standards, and. Then, respectfulness, just basic respectfulness. Well, I agree, and, <laughs> yeah. and and that's why I think it's really hard to swallow this. Uh, what, what has succeeded President Obama? It's every it's time he makes like a, what? Well, every time he makes a statement, President Obama, you're you're thinking that's over. That's the guy that was our president, right. and uh, we 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 have this such undignified right. person, it's humiliating, on a global stage again, and also for kids. This is what we're also exalting as the leader. Yeah. Because I remember as a small child, you know, I was born in 1981, so um, President Reagan was the first president I had an awareness of he's Mm -hmm. my president. And even though as I grew older, I was someone that maybe, you know, came not to agree with much of what he stood for from a policy standpoint. But he, even as a child, the graciousness in how he spoke and treated others, it was transmitted on my TV. You know what I'm saying? You don't always have to understand all the policy things, but you're six, seven years old. You can tell when someone is at least somewhat friendly. And, yeah. and you know what I'm saying? Just like can interact with people in a way that's like just normal. You know what I mean? And I, and, and, and it's interesting, you know, because I would later realize, oh, he's known to be the great communicator. You know, he had obviously a certain set of skills that 
he doesn't have, you know? I, I yeah. see that I, I don't want to begin to psychoanalyze right. uh, Donald Trump. That's George Conway's job. <laughs> he does it brilliantly <laughs> and less than 240 characters on Twitter. If I, I may make a suggestion it. to the audience who are listening, I would encourage you to please check out Parit Bharara's podcast. George oh, Conway, awesome. I love his podcast. Yeah. Parit Bharara did an episode with George Conway. Oh, I got to check that one out. I'm going to send it to you. Okay. It's fantastic. And people run for office for mm-hmm. a varying different uh, for for policy reasons to, for moral reasons for you name it there's a right. hundred different reasons why people jump into an elected office and say i'm going to put my name on a ballot it's a courageous thing it's not easy no. you're you're susceptible to partisan attacks of you're course. you're going to have your bills fail but right. what is your what was your reasoning for putting your name on that ballot my children and I know it sounds cheesy to people it's but, not though but it's like my husband and I were not born in Baltimore but my sons will always be Baltimore natives and I feel like wherever you're from I don't care if you're from a hole in the ground you better be proud of that because that's where you're from and you should feel proud of it because that's mm-hmm. what made you like I don't care who you are right and I and it breaks my heart to see people feel like they can't achieve all of their dreams for themselves without leaving Baltimore. I feel like we should be working to make every city that we all represent so wonderful that it's always an option for anyone that hails from there, that it's not a place they feel like they need to leave. It's not a, you know what I'm saying? It should be always an an option. And um, for me, you know, I just realized that we needed more people with skin in the game at the policy table. I'm the only person from Baltimore City on the education subcommittee. And I think that's important because I'm raising my kids right now. You know, a lot of other people are parents, but it's really different when someone's kids are our age versus like right now in the current reality facing a whole completely different economic system at the end of that education than what their kids you know graduated into so you got skin in the game yes you have skin in the game it's indisputable and I also think that we also need it um, just people with some different professional experiences. I, I usually laugh that, yeah, you don't need more lawyers in, in most spaces like this. But we didn't have a lawyer in my district delegation. So I thought, you know, there was some value to having a, a new, you know, professional experience there. And, um, you know, I think we, we put a lot of focus on encouraging people to vote. And I am, like, all about it. But I think we forget that that's, like, the least you can do. <laughs> and um, we, we almost act like it's the most. But it's truly the least you can do is vote, right? That's so, a civic responsibility. Right. But that... we, you know, the way we talk about it is almost out of balance, like it's the end-all, be-all. Right. And I think when we get frustrated feeling like, oh, I wish somebody, you know, had this experience or this perspective. Well, once you get to a certain age, you have to realize maybe you have to be that person to stop waiting for someone else to step up. And that's kind of, you know, what brought me to this moment. And I had to clear this with my husband, my mom who lives with me. I wouldn't do this if I didn't have family support and I have the privilege of having that family support that makes this possible. But if I'm in that room, then I can talk about the kinds of things working parents you know, deal with and I can talk about the kind of things people navigating public schools are dealing with because it's actually happening to me right now. I'm not reflecting from something 30 years ago and trying to provide policy making by antidote. That is just problematic. Yeah. There's too much good information on the Google machine for us to be <laughs> leading that way. So um, I just think we needed um, some fresh perspectives, and that's why I your, stepped up. Your state senator, of course, is Corey McRae, yes. and he is someone who came into office. He had a great story to Absolutely. tell, and he told it. And look, I look at Annapolis as changing, and we're talking about young, new, uh, policy-minded individuals with a real knack for leadership that are emerging and they're taking out some of the older generation and i i mean that respectfully i they are moving we had a whole week last week about what does take out mean um with, was well, it with ukraine yeah take her out <laughs> take her yeah, out or that's, <laughs> yeah that's what he said Not on a date a good continue no yes take her out like you know well, yeah um, yeah. Because, of course, we're dealing with a, a third-rate wannabe mafia man. So, you know, that's how he talks. I mean, um, well, I think this continue. But uh, Corey McRae is someone who puts leads with integrity. Absolutely. And so tell me about the 45th Legislative District of Maryland. Well, I have a Corey story to start off with. Do you really? So um, Corey knocked on my door when he was running for delegate. And my mom, um, who's voted since she, you know, was 18, she's voted her whole life. She was like, but that's the first time anyone's ever knocked on my door and asked me for my vote, right? Is that right? And I I don't even think I was home, you know, when he initially um, knocked on the the door. So my mom immediately, like, started following all of his social media. Like, you would think that was her son. Like, she's so all, you know, about 
um, Corey. So that intrigued me, and I started you know following kind of not only his campaign but once he won, he would have these things called conversations with Corey, like mm-hmm. you know little meetups. So I would go to learn more about what was happening here, and never in a million years did I think I'd be joining him here. I was just a resident who wanted to know what was going on because I at that time was advocating um, for Earth Justice. It's the largest nonprofit environmental law firm in the country, and I was a you know advocate in, in the federal space. So I was like, I know everything that's happening down there. I need to know what's happening up, up here. Right. <laughs> so um, it was just really great to have that accessibility to what was happening in the state house through Cory. So the 45th district where I live is, I live at the bottom of the district, so it's very, um, densely um, populated with a lot of row homes. I live in a hundred, my row home turned a hundred years old this wow. year. Um, it was vacant for 25 years. So we worked um, to um, restore it. And now um, we've been there three years, but we moved to Northeast Baltimore about um, a dozen years ago. And um, that area may even feel a bit suburban to people. So when people <laughs> used to visit me up there, um, I have a, a friend and colleague in my day job who wrote a book about 300 years of Northeast Baltimore sit, um, history, and it's called the City of Suburb because that used to be the um, agricultural um, center of Baltimore was the northeast part of um, Baltimore City where I, um, rep- where I represent and where I used to live. So um, it, it's really... Um, community driven people are really into their part of the 45th and um that rich um community infrastructure is something that i love because you could go a couple blocks and it's a whole new thing going on (laughs) and um one of the things that we're proud of um in in the walterson community is a is a a place called walter gardens and it's where people meet up for snow cones and things like that and it's debatable but it's not debatable to me that the um snow cone um counter there it's like a little hut it is the oldest one in america oh, some place wow. in new orleans claims it's the oldest one but, <laughs> but we have the oldest one and it's also where we get our christmas trees in the winter because it's um you know a garden center and it's just a place where people meet up so um what i re- what i really love about um our district is you can have a more suburban feel you can have you know a more kind of city feel because we have mount vernon you know we have penn station some of those places that people you know who might not be from baltimore city or at least you know maybe familiar with then we also have you know beverly hills is actually a neighborhood called Beverly Hills and um, Coco's is nearby. Oh, <laughs> Beverly Hills. That's the place to get the crab it's cakes. Delicious. So K O C O. K O C O. Yeah, you might Google incorrectly. K O C O. And if you're listening, I I also encourage people to check out Jimmy's. Okay, Jimmy's okay. Jimmy, Jimmy's is. <laughs> I've been to Jimmy's a couple times, and their crab cakes are like no lie. They're Coco's like that are huge. One time I'm gonna I go. Finish. I gotta go. I couldn't finish it. That big. My friend said her husband talked about the crab cake for a week. Wow. They were just visiting. Is this a is it, is it like a convenience store? No, it's um it's like a a, a, t- a tavern. Yeah. So um you're giving them like a huge shout out. This thing <laughs> I we're going to make this go viral. And Thursday is a crab cake night. Ooh. <laughs> Everyone All knows you can eat? this. No, no, it's just like a slight discount. Okay. You know. But um no, um, my husband and everyone who who knows me knows how passionate I am about Coco's crab cakes. So. Well, if there's one yeah. thing in Maryland to be passionate about, I can <laughs> I think you're. I think you're on the right track. Being this is, this passionate, is real. This is real love. That's right. That's right. And no matter where you are in Maryland, Jesus, husband, kids, go girls, and then crack. <laughs> that's what keeps me going for for Baltimore. That's a good hierarchy. I might have to use that. You know. So in the top five. That's the top five crab cakes. Um, top my maybe number six would be not to be at Harry Brown's on a night when there's an oh, Irish singer. I know. They're at, do you hear them out there? No, these headphones are working. Pretty soon they're going to bring a like a marching band through, <laughs> and it's going to be old Danny Boy. You're going to see old Danny Boy coming in here. I really want to see some river dance. I, it would make it all worth it. <laughs> I will lobby you as a non-registered lobbyist to go out and do river dance. I am just a spectator. Of, I, I have been a dancer in my past, but I'm not the lord of the dance, so I do not have those skills. So, yeah. Well, look, I am interested to talk to you about how you became delegation chair. Oh, and it's, I got voted it. You, they voted for me. <laughs> I heard that. I heard that from somewhere. But your predecessor went out in a... Uh, interesting fashion. In an interesting way. And it's either... Um, and I, I think she went out by having the right to remain silent. It appears that way. Unfortunate incident. And it's happening right. all over the country. Look, Maryland is not special. Mm-mm. We we have our we have some issues, right? right? With and the city of Baltimore, of mm-hmm. course, had has Catherine Pugh. Absolutely. Right. 
But Maryland is not the only state no. that has these issues. I mean, please travel to Illinois. New Jersey just had a big, big sting. They did. Yeah. yeah. Like a week or two ago. Exactly. Right. So uh, it's it's not exclusive. Mm-mm. But it, it was disappointing because Cheryl Glenn was a well-respected legislator in Annapolis. And reading more reports and understanding the situation, uh, you, you, there's, there's a piece of me that feels sorry for mm-hmm. her that mm-hmm. said— you 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 got like every American. Sometimes right. you get lost in expenses and finances, and I truly believe that she came to Annapolis to right. do the right thing. Right. I've never been led anywhere else to believe right. that she came here to skim off money and uh, and, and take these bribes, right? right? Right. But it's just like it's it's un- it's so unfortunate because you look you look at someone like her who fell from grace. And she's not the only person that it's happened to in the last year. I mean, it's happened to a couple of your colleagues right. in the House. And I, to me, as if I were a legislator, that'd be disappointing. And oh, it's like yeah. we can be—we're better than that. Right. Um, and and I'm I'm hoping that uh, Cheryl Glenn and look, she's obviously I don't know what is going to happen right. next. I assume right. that she might be going to jail. I guess uh, in May we'll find out. In May we will find out. Um, but it's. It, oh, you hear the Irish music? So, yes, they're, they're out there. <laughs> Sorry, I just finally heard it. <laughs> but I, I just wish that, I, I just wish that people, when, when they're analyzing this, yes, that it makes you angry. Yes, it's a breach of trust, but they're still human beings. Right. And there's a, there's, a, there's a big piece of me that wants to be compassionate and understanding, but still, violating the public trust is a big deal, uh, delegate. Yeah. And that's yeah. really... Uh, I mean, that's the thick of it. This what was your reaction to that? One, disbelief. Yeah. Because... Um, and you know her. You knew her. I mean, I knew her, but, you know, I just began serving with her. So I, I was right. trying to form a relationship. You know what I mean? As a peer. You know? She was a decent leader. Right. And it's like you said before, a lot of Americans get in financial jams. That's not new. You know what I mean? Mm, um, yeah. I, I know that um, for people, divorce becoming widow. These are all transitions that can put, you know, stress on people's finances. But I think that we have to trust the villages to which we belong with our problems. That's right. It's when you try to figure things out on your own and you're stressed, it's hard to make a sober decision when you're, you know, feeling frazzled or whatever. And I think that um, sometimes we don't, we do ourselves a disservice because we don't really ask for help. Right. You know, when we're trying to figure everything out on our own. And had it gone much differently, then she may still be the Baltimore County or the Baltimore City Delegation Chair. Right. And this is unfortunate. It's unfortunate for the institution. Absolutely. It's unfortunate for the taxpayers that trust sitting delegates. Absolutely. We're all impacted. Right. And you have a fiduciary responsibility to the state, to the taxpayers. Absolutely. And when. When your colleagues violate that trust, it only weakens this institution. And the thing is, it's like you said earlier, people are feeling disillusioned at different levels of government. So it's not like it's like, okay, just that one person's disappointing me, but I can at least balance it with this other. Isn't that how Trump got elected? Capitalizing. You know what I mean? On all those levels of distrust. So this is really um, corrosive, you know, and, and it really makes it hard for people who are doing the right thing. But I always tell people, your leadership is not in a title. It's something you have to re-earn each successive day. That's a great thought. And when thought. you forget that, I think that's where problems can creep in. Because I know I'm not even owed anybody's trust. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like you when you earn ex- it. When you expect people to trust you, then you're already looking at it wrong. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I don't expect anyone to trust me. I want to earn their trust and respect. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And when you keep yourself in that frame, whether you've been here five months or 50 years, you realize it's nobody owes you anything. Right. And I think that corruption by by the dismaying the public trust by Mm -hmm. uh, that that is certainly uh, indicative of a culture that people have grown to detest. Right. And that's why I think people are so fed up with politics. Absolutely. And you are in, you are in the middle of all, all of, of this because you, <laughs> right. as a legislator, you have an obligation to always be square on your fake right. campaign finance reports. That's right. But 
every time that this happens, it chisels away. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I, I think I have an understanding of why Donald Trump was elected president. Absolutely. And I think that... I think it was a combination. I don't think that it was yeah, one, no one factor. Thing is a constellation it, it, of things. It, it yeah. was a hundred different things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was a culmination, That's a right. confluence of events That's that right. took us to this point in American history. And then that's, you know, someone who studied politics in right. my, my undergraduate, um, we, we have to think critically, how do we get here? What do we do to prevent this right. again? Right. And maybe we're maybe we're at a point in our American history where there's going to be some just absolutely like just this cataclysmic change, right? Yeah. And and I think that it happened in 2008 when President right. Obama was elected. Right. Watershed moment. Exactly. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. one of those defining moments in American yep. history. It almost feels like it didn't happen. It's so right. it feels like it's a million years ago, but it wasn't. No, it was what ten years ago. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It wasn't that long. Ago. It's it's incredible. And now that President Trump is in office, we're going through this impeachment stuff. What what do you think about this? Is that I hear. Republicans say that it's a waste of time, that it's a hoax. They repeat the talking points. Right. But I'm not a lawyer, but right. I will tell you that I have watched almost every single hearing that I oh, have. Oh, it was you? Uh, uh, yeah, just, I mean, I, I have no life. <laughs> no, no, it's totally fine. But I mean, I wish more people, you know, could see. I, I, I watched the, the testimony right. of Dr. Fiona Hill. Oh, my gosh. She was, like, impressive. Oh, I mean, we're talking about quality people. Right. People have served Public the United Exactly. Foreign yeah. service officers. Sacrificed. People who have, uh, Colonel Vidman. Yes. People who yes. have sacrificed their life for right. the American way of life, right. for an idea right. to secure, protect, and defend, and to advance America around the world in a respectful and pragmatic way. And when I see them demonized, it upsets me so much. And yes. I'm thinking, how could this be? And yet we're making these these. The, the Republicans continue to make the arguments. I understand right. the president is owed a defense, and but I I listen to Morning Joe every day. Yeah. It, it, in in fact, my wife she hates me because I set up. At, we have an Alexa in our in our bedroom, <laughs> yeah. and it now at six a.m. It knows what to do. It 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 has a routine, and my wife and until my wife likes basically said, I'm going to hatchet you in your sleep if you, <laughs> if you, if that light comes on at 6 a.m. Um, yeah, she threatened me. And she's four foot 11 and, and she's scary. Oh my gosh. She's scary. Yeah. When my wife threatens me, uh, I know what to do. I'm, I, I have to revert back to being, you know, the good, dutiful husband. So she's, but anyway, Morning Joe came on this morning and <laughs> Joe Scarborough used a phrase. He called them the Confederacy of Dunces. To refer to Trump's yeah. band of followers. lawyers, yeah, yeah, you know it's it's sad because at this point it's not even the GOP, right? This is an entire, at least national party that feels captured by this one personality in a way that why I don't see why? their path forward, but you know, like, as a party. What are you? What would someone get out of someone who? I think they they recognize they have to acknowledge that at the core he's not a good guy. Oh, I think that's and I think they're that, clear on that, right? Yeah. And I think that it's okay for journalists to say, "Look, this is not a guy that you would trust around your mother, around your daughter, anybody you cared about." Right. Right. And his behavior, his pattern of behavior from well beyond, well before he ever became president. He's been consistent. If you want to keep it real, mm-hmm. like he's not surprising. He's the same all the time but why are republicans willing to go to the mattresses for this guy like you know i think the irony is that when i think about particularly the federal you know on priorities of the gop they have been um to quote the title of i think mitch mcconnell's book been focusing on the long game (laughs) and um, well he's playing that you know so you do see the concerns about stocking the supreme court like so um getting a federal judiciary that resembles what we have today, you know, what Trump has been confirming. The long game was to get to a moment where all of their policy dreams could come true. And in some ways, a lot of that is what is keeping, I think, some people with Trump is that they might not right. think he's a decent man. They they are pretty certain he has no relationship with Christ. I mean, all the things that they claim they care about, I think they're clear he's not someone to respect. But if they're going to get the, the, the goals of the long game, which were about control of essentially the judiciary for the the federal judiciary for the foreseeable future. 
I think they're thinking that's worth it. I think they're willing to... I mean, that's what I... That's the only thing that makes sense to me. I mean, consider this. They're willing to trade in... Their soul. Their... And dignity. Their... What they claim is moral values. Oh, yeah. It's over. (laughs) For tax cuts for the wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And for conservative Supreme Court justices. They're willing to trade babies in. at the border, separated from their family. I mean, they're they're able to tolerate. And what all normal? Of well, and I my question is, in in all seriousness, what normal administration would a Brett Kavanaugh have ended up on the United States Supreme Court? I watched Dr. Blassie's testimony, and and look, and I watched I, it all too. And I'm thinking, how is this happening? I, and, and, and people, they demonize her. They want to poke holes. I mean, that's fine. I get it. She came forward. His but His performance was actually worse than anything. Like, he singularly was so disrespectful to the entire panel, and particularly disrespectful to Amy Klobuchar, if you remember, in the exchange. Like, he yeah, was but she clapped back. belligerent. Yeah, but she shouldn't have to. Right. He's someone who wants her right. support to be <laughs> Supreme Court. <laughs> so I just thought it was galling that he thought that that was okay. I mean, he was really... A grumpy child up there. I, 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 there's a certain decorum and a certain um, judicial temperament that people are expecting from right. someone Especially who's from, going to get a lifetime yeah. appointment to the highest court in the land at such a tender age. Because in, yeah. in judicial life, he's a he's like a, but a babe. So it was really <laughs> disconcerting to see that type of temperament on display. Switching directions, we yeah. talked earlier in this show about the Kerwin Commission, right. about Kerwin funding. I went to Mako this past, okay. uh, in 2019, and went to the different events, mm-hmm. and the number one issue on officials' minds, that are elected county officials, right. was how we pay this price right. tag, $4 billion, right? right. That's what, over, over the course of uh, 10 years, I am, I too, as someone who has kids in Montgomery County Public Schools, how are you having these conversations with constituents when they hear that price? That's a lot of right, money. Absolutely. So what are some of the ways? You're on Ways and Means. Yeah, that's what to say. I was about to volunteer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're on Ways and Means, and coming up with a way to pay for Kerwin has to be this legislative challenge of this, this right. session, right? Right. So one of the things that we want to focus on reminding people is we've already paid for the first three years. So that's what we were able to do, you know, last session. So when you look at the um, remaining seven years and kind of that first 10-year commitment that you're talking about, um, we realized that um, particularly when you look at Baltimore City, you look at Prince George's County, um, there are great needs for um, students in those systems to get improved funding because when you look at the overall state, 53% of black students go to underfunded schools as opposed to 8%. And we can guess where many of those black students are, 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 are concentrated. You know, they're concentrated in Baltimore City Public Schools and Prince George's. But in the same respect, we also realize we do have a, a state constitution that guarantees a free and adequate education to all Maryland students. So there's a, there's a reason for the state to have considerable skin in the game, but it doesn't mean solitary, no skin in the game. So I, I know that um, my mayor, along with other um, um, you know county um, executives, like you were mentioning at MAKO, everyone is trying to figure out what's that fix that does increase the support that um, the localities um, give, but is also manageable so that they can take care of the other responsibilities they have right. as um, executives. Because we still have to, you know, keep streets, you know, straight. We still have to fix stormwater issues. You know, there's, there's a lot of responsibilities that um, county executives and the mayor have. I think Marylanders are, at this point, concerned that taxes are going to rise. Right. Is that a plausible situation? Well, both of the... Um, presiding officers, you know, of the Senate and the, and the, and the um, House have made it clear there would not be any whole-scale changes mm-hmm. to the tax code. But it's probably no secret to you, I'm, I have been a part of the Fair Funding Coalition um, support of looking at the highest earners, those millionaires, you know, restoring that millionaire tax. It's just a part of the conversation. I know that um, we haven't had meaningful tax reform in like a few decades in Maryland. So, you know, a lot of what we're pushing are things that we think are viable to, um, you know, providing some some infusions of, of, of cash that are necessary. But we don't think it's like, there's no one um, um, tax bill that would give you everything you need, right? It's also looking at corporate tax reform. It's also looking at, um, you know, tax credits. Are some of the credits that we've extended, are they yielding what we were told in the purpose of the tax credits? Like, should some things be expiring because they haven't yielded what they were supposed to? Should, should certain others be restructured or altogether abandoned? Those, It's going to be a constellation of kind of 
I think, financial reforms related to um, what we're doing around revenues that we're going to be looking at holistically. What about the governor? Of course, the Mm -hmm. governor has taken a firm position. In fact, at Mako, he made a speech and called it the Kerwin tax hike. Mm -hmm. And so are do you see your your delegation or the the general assembly as a whole having constructive conversations with governor hogan as this prog- progresses throughout session i think we always hope to have a fact-based dialogue about what's possible for the young people of Maryland. So as long as we can have like a real honest conversation about numbers that are real and about the needs of the students that are real, there's always an open door to collaborate with our governor. It's every, um, I think, elected officials hope, no matter what side of their aisle they're on, that they feel like their governor has the back of this of all the young people of Maryland and that's what we're hoping you know to have from any governor because quite frankly I always tell people you always pay you either pay you know um, the proper strategic investments that you that you planned out or because of your lack of preparation and your lot of lack of strategic investments you're gonna pay another way so um, there is just no long-term fiscally and economically sustainable future for Maryland if we do not modify the way we're educating young people. Because right now, there are some scary outcomes. I think sometimes we've been kind of lulled into complacency when we hear, oh, we're like in the top five of states for education. Those are all things that sound good. But when you're analyzing it um, in kind of just those big, broad strokes, there's a lot of crevices under that number that are not that are like tragic level um in there of great concern so um you know the Kerwin commission over three years they kind of showed we're in the middle of the pack and a nation that's globally in the middle of the pack that's not anything to be proud of you know what i mean this is a global economy we're not competing just with people in the dmv we're competing with the world in a knowledge-based economy what do you think uh or what is your take on the governor's budget uh, that he just released? Well, um, <laughs> there's some interesting things in there. Um, I have to say, it, it, I, echoing you know our chairman um, of appropriations, Maggie you know, McIntosh, mm-hmm. could have been worse, right? <laughs> 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 you know, it could always have been worse. Um, I think there's some conversations that will be had, particularly around um, highway, highway user revenue and, 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 and kind of reducing some of that. It's always an issue for counties. They yeah. they need more money. But, you know, with um, the city of Baltimore, we maintain the state roads in Baltimore City. Yep. So something that maybe your listeners don't know. So a reduction in that for the expansion of the Howard Street Tunnel, um, we still have the responsibility of maintaining those state roads. Do you no think the governor what. was wrong on the red line? Oh, absolutely. That was a generational game changer that was arbitrarily just when you get that type of commitment from the federal government of nearly a billion dollars and you basically just go no thanks it will take another generation to be in a position to get that type of funding again because it took so much organizing just to tee it up that was a game changer when you look at um, transportation policy and you look at how long it takes to get from some neighborhoods in Baltimore City to where the job centers are. So, for example, down where the Amazon Fulfillment Center is in South Baltimore yep. to the BWI, um, excuse me, the Baltimore um, BWI kind of, you know, that constellation of um, business centers, you know, around BWI, and then also Hunt Valley in Baltimore County. Mm-hmm. So the community that has the largest commute time in Baltimore City to those populate to those job centers, rather, is Sandtown Winchester. And what's with Sandtown Winchester um, associated with the Freddy, death of Freddie Gray. So you have a community with alarmingly high unemployment rates that also has the highest commute times by you know public transit to where the jobs are. So when your public transit is unreliable, it makes you, Ryan, unreliable. You could be a great worker when you get there, but if you're not able to get there, and then when you get to um, the last stop near your job, there's a mile walk Mm. from that stop to the job, we are literally crippling people's ability to be productive in ways that some people in the DC metro don't even have to think about because there's more ways for carless people to get around. And we are uniquely transit dependent in, in Baltimore City. And yet, with that reality, people have very limited ways to get around without a car. People also want to get to Preakness. Yes. People want to go to Pimlico. Absolutely. How do we fix it? Well, I think we have something exciting. You couldn't have told me a year ago we would be in a position now where the city, the Stronach Group, um, you know, Baltimore County. My wife curses them. She does. If she's watching right now, my wife 
is probably cursing the Stronic group. Kim, do what you do, whatever. You know, this is not. You know, I'm not involved in the hexes that you're you're, you're conjuring over there. But um, you know, we're, we're looking forward about how this can be um, not only just an investment in a day, but an investment in a community. Park Heights has, um, you know, it has a master plan that they've implemented. We have two brand new 21st century schools there. We have some homes that we're renovating um, around those new schools. So when you have new schools in a community, new housing in a community, and then you have the opportunity to have Pimlico redeveloped to not only host a tremendous, magnificent Preakness, but to also have fields that can be used for athletics in the other 362, whatever years, you know, days rather that are, that racing isn't happening there and that you can have um, community meeting spaces you can have festivals you can do so much more and to have a partner like LifeBridge at the table with you know Mount Sinai they've now, right. you know merged it's a real um, exciting moment for community public sector and private sector partnership to emerge and you couldn't have told me a year ago <laughs> with um the anxiety and angst in the air that we would be at this moment, I'd be like, eh, I don't know. But we're there. And um, I feel like we're cooking with grease and we have um, a lot of support from the presiding officers moving forward. So It seems like that most Marylanders, the legislative side, are on board with right. maintaining this historical right. Hugely community historic. around Pemlico. It right. has to maintain it Absolutely. there. I don't see it going anywhere else. No. And it I, I just huge. think that it's too important to the city's future. Absolutely. And it's like our Super Bowl every year. Ex- exactly. And it, it it's like if you take Pemlico out of Baltimore, it's not gonna be it's Pemlico. Not even Pemlico. It's, it's not it's even be. Preakness, you know. Yeah. So um, you know, it's in the state law. That, mm, yeah. that the Preakness must be in um Baltimore. And um, you know, we don't want any type of structural reason to be why it's not there. So yep. redeveloping Pimlico so it's a suitable experience for all people so that all bathrooms work. And, um, <laughs> you know, there's no funny business like that. That was important, um, not just for that day, but for um, the future of the city. So we're really excited. Have you picked a presidential candidate? I um, applied to be um, a Warren delegate. I okay. actually um, endorsed her probably two months ago. Wow. I think there's a lot of Warren the people most, in Maryland. The most um, okay. people applied. You know, for, it was, um, I believe, Warren. And then I think it was Buttigieg, two, and then Sanders, and then four, um, Biden, in terms of um, ones that were able to field a okay. complete, you know, roster across the state. I have no idea how this presidential contest is going to turn out. Me either. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I can't even make a, a But I can series. tell you something. Please. I'm going to work my heart out for the Democratic nominee. Well, that's fair. I, I think that, and I hope that other... I hope it's Elizabeth Warren. Well, I, I hope you heard that what I said. <laughs> we have a, a, a clean race between right. whoever right. is nominated. And right. I, I think that the rest... I think we've got some tough people, and they're going to need it. Sure. So. And the rest of the country, the rest of the world is watching. Oh, the whole this world. Will, the whole world. Like, the, what's happening? Right. And, and I think the... As, as, as the press watch this, as they uncover this, and yeah. there's going to be thousands of other stories, but I just hope that it's a clean and fair election. And my concern is, is that look, we are we're still susceptible to foreign interference in our elections, and we have people in our country that are ignoring that because of political reasons. But we can. I mean, our our top security people are saying, look. You got this issue where it's other real. countries, it's real. We got to face it. And I, my hope is, is that our elections are secure. And also, you know, this is not in any way to um, say that, uh, you know, like, let's be real. But so- social media mm. is powerful. It is. It can, it can um, launch a revolution like in Egypt. No. <laughs> but it could also Twitter fuel, did that. Get through Twitter, rather, you know. Um, but it could also lend itself to people not being able to discern yeah. what is real and what is really a manip- manipulative you know set of things that is masquerading a legitimate source so i mean I hate to say everything is about the education people we don't need fact to check teach people to be critical thinkers to really um to vet you know what they are consuming right you know but because we're moving to a place where whether you just think you're liberal conservative or somewhere in the middle people are really just seeking content that affirms their kind i agree of hunch or their disposition, and I think people are um, not as comfortable being challenged, but like I, you know, intellectually challenged about. But things, I also think you know. on on the other side of that is that I I try to read as much news right. as possible from 
the Washington Post to the New York Times right. to the Baltimore Sun to the Washington Times right. uh, to my hometown newspaper in Hagerstown. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I read blogs. I read all kinds of news. And really, I, and I listen to a lot of radio right. news. I, I, I can't go there with Fox. I'm sorry. I can't do it. I can't. I have tried. I have... But are they still the number one cable news? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you get what I'm saying? Like, and that's, that's you, it all right there. I can't. I just, it, turning that on, you know that you're getting nonsense. It's, right. it's gibberish. It's just complete It's not foolish. ethical. It's not even like professionally <sighs> and, ethical and from I know a journalism there, and perspective. There's, there's some good, on the news division of Fox, I believe that there are some good journalists right. there. And look, the president shot out a tweet today about Chris Wallace and who... He's and, a you know, real... Yeah, he's a real right. journalist. His right. dad, Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace, Shepherd's, icon. <laughs> yeah, icon. Right. Shepard Smith left. Yeah, he, he could take it anyway. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. Yeah, when Shep, Shep left, go. when Shep left, I knew it was bad. Right. But I can't... Because he made do. a lot of money. He did. He was their chief anchor during breaking news. And this is a guy who worked his way up through... He got a pretty good sweetheart separation deal, so I think he's okay. Yeah, and... But I'll tell you what, I'm not sad to see Megan Kelly go because she, yeah, yeah, I see the tears rolling. And it's just so hard. Well, it was all about Megan Kelly. Megan, Ke- yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and then when she got her, her little show, when she got her pink slip from uh, what? Uh, I was broken up. Oh, can't you tell? Did you spend a week in bed? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, <sighs> I'm just sure. Hard to go on. This was fun. Yeah, it was fun. Really, I appreciate you coming on, especially on a, a school night That's for you. Nice. For you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this is fun. I, I want to talk again uh, oh, yeah. later I, in the session about absolutely. what's happening. As, as things will what, be more, there'll be more to like refer to that's active, yes. you know, not just potential things. It's kind of the boring time, right? Are you, you're, you can't be bored. I'm not bored because now I have these new duties. You know, before it was um, people right. were trying to get to know you. Now you're people, corralling. Yeah, exactly. And um, my new um, dedicated um, staff came on board. Shout out to Crystal York. I now have mm-hmm. delegation staff because, you know. Do you have a gavel? I do. Do they give you your own gavel? It was whatever was already in the, in the okay. desk, All apparently. Right. Well, um, but I, I don't abuse that. It's just a you start just, and end. Okay. And that's it. And if anybody gets out of hand, you can always... You know, I have a mommy evil eye that I can whip out. I don't know how effective it is around here, but uh, if necessary. I've gotten that from my mother many times. And you know you're just like, okay. <laughs> Get your life together. Yeah. Get your life together. <laughs> Delegate, this was fun. So Thank you so much. Uh, Delegate Stephanie Smith from the from Baltimore City. 45th District. 45th District. She Baltimore. is the chair of the Baltimore delegation. And uh, she joined me tonight on a Minor Detail Podcast, Fun Time. So thank you so much and have a successful week. Oh, yeah. Same to you. All right. Are you interested in sponsoring an episode of a Minor Detail Podcast? Email me at ryan at a minordetail.com. Again, be sure to subscribe to a Minor Detail Podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Overcast, CastBox, or wherever you download your podcast. Visit a minordetailpodcast.com for all of the latest episodes. And for Maryland news and politics, visit a minordetail.com and subscribe to my daily newsletter. I'm Ryan Miner. See you next time.